Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On tonight's program, we have an in-depth conversation with Dr. America Bracho. She's the executive director of Latino Health Access. And we talked to her about their recent publication that came out on Hesperian Health Guides called Recruiting the Heart, Training the Brain. The work of Latino Health Access about the community health worker model, how anyone interested in promoting health must embrace their cultural roots, pay attention to how race, class, and gender inequities cause health problems, and build upon the strengths and resources of their communities. We'll also continue the theme of community empowerment with an interview with Dr. Edgar Torres from San Francisco City College about all the many opportunities students can have if they take part in classes and that enrollment is open now for all to enroll in San Francisco City College classes. We also bring you a calendar of upcoming events, all this and much more. Gracias por estar con nosotros. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Kusnid and we're going to have the pleasure tonight to talk to America Bracho. She's the executive director of Latino Health Access, based in Santana, but really has built a model that is used all over the country and is informing and transforming the way people are looking at community work and health work in general. Dr. Bracho, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We're actually going to get a chance to talk about a book that you recently worked on with the Hesperian Health Guides, Recruiting the Heart, Training the Brain, the work of Latino Health Access. And after speaking with the folks at Hesperian Health Guides, uh, they let me know that part of the reason that this book was so, so important to develop in partnership with you all was the fact that here in the United States or in general, oftentimes, you know, the model of doing community health work is is looking at the community as what are people doing wrong what what's going on how can we go in and and try to find ways to just spread education but doing it from a very top down way or um, oftentimes giving people a sense that maybe they're inherently wrong or approaching them from a way that is often very alienating and there aren't a lot of models to look at how how do we really start from the beginning? What are the ways? How do we set priorities as an organization? How do we really include leadership, community leadership from the beginning? And this book, book that really details the story of Latino Health Access is a really beautiful model and also tells a lot of stories of how health education and how health promotion work really is community organizing and community building. Dr. Bracho, so tell us a little bit about um, those first steps, because so much of what um, what we see is that people who are personally affected by the health issues around them are brought in at the very end, where it's, okay, we need people to attend a presentation, or we need people to pass out flyers. Um, that's very, very different from Latino Health Access. So why don't you tell us about some of the principles and some of the strategies Latino Health Access uses to really include community members and those personally impacted by the issues that you tackle in decision-making? I'm going to go back a little bit just to tell you that 23 years ago when we created our organization, pretty much the Latino community in Orange County was invisible. And invisible, and, uh, and you know, I love to talk about why do I say that? Well, because there were not programs in Spanish. There was not data on the conditions of our lives. There were very, very few, a handful of people, maybe in some coalitions, really not a priority on what was going on with uh, our community. So um, I was uh, coming from uh, uh, being the director of HIV programs in Detroit with a Latino community of 30,000 people that had more programs than more than 1 million in Orange County. And also coming from the experience of HIV, in which really the issue was not just the virus and the issue was not just the condom. The issue was a society that is not talking and really processing the fact that there are more than, you know, heterosexual people in the world. And that there are that there are women that do not have access to a lot of rights, that there are inequities. So because all of those conditions are the ones that foster the epidemics. And, uh, and people want to solve epidemics with one condom. The same way they want to fight poor sanitation and poverty 
and diarrhea with just water, salt, and sugar. So, you know, there has been a way in which society wants to solve everything at finding a magic bullet, and there is not such a thing. And more and more, you know, we, we are growing convinced that there are root causes to the issues affecting our communities, one, and two, that the solution is not in the hands of people with technical expertise, but that the people that leave the data, the people that leave the data should be at the table understanding what's going on with their communities and explaining that. And of course, uh, the mainstream, the dominant discourse continues to be, you know, universities go, gather data, or people in government go, gather data, and, and come up with solutions. There are many things that are problematic about that approach because uh, it, it assumes that you are the only one that can provide solutions as university or government people. And that assumption in itself is telling, you know, uh, the world that you are the only one that can think, that you can offer your talents, but people in communities only have needs. So from our point of view, what we decided was, well, Indeed, there are many problems in our communities, in communities that are affected by low wage, by discrimination, by lack of opportunities. But indeed, we know that there are many strengths. We know that those are the communities where our parents, sisters, brothers, and where many of us grew up. And we believe in our talents, and we believe in the strengths of Mrs. Maria that make tamales or Mrs. Bienvenida, who is the one that advised everyone in the neighborhood. But also we believe in the talents of Moises, who at 15 was already helping other teams getting better opportunities. So what we said was we have the option of entering in Orange County, creating an organization that can provide more services, or we can provide services and through those services identify people that can be recruited as community experts and can guide the agenda of our organization so we can be more relevant, so really they can guide, and that comes with its own challenges. But that was the proposal. So we started with our diabetes program and recruited the first group of community workers. Then we found a bunch of things happening in the classes of diabetes. People that were taking the, the snacks home because they were hungry, women that were confronting domestic violence, and they came to us because they had diabetes, but there were other issues affecting their lives. So, of course, the community workers and, and, and our team said, you know, this is what we're hearing. This is going to be guiding our strategies, and we are going to recruit people being affected by this so they can come up with solutions, and that's how it's going to go. And 23 years later, we have 42 promotores. We are 62 people. 42 community workers, and we have programs to prevent and manage chronic diseases. We have programs for emotional wellness and for mental health. And then we have an entire territory of community engagement, civic engagement, and advocacy. And, um, and one of our main learnings throughout, we have many learnings, but one of the main learnings uh, is that needs do not change communities. Uh, needs do not change communities. There are many communities around the planet that have a lot of needs, and that hasn't changed them. What changed communities is the recognition of their own strength and their own power. And there have to be conversations about strength and power. And a lot of our own challenges have been that, of course, we all grew up in this society. We all uh, grew up in a society that, that only privileged formal education and they have its own image of success and what is to be smart. So sharing power internally has been an incredible learning, uh, planning with promotores, creating strategies, you know, having the community as your co-workers, and then having people with PhDs and masters. I mean, it has been an incredible learning to have teams that are composed of young, old, people that are community experts with people that are technical experts. It has been a, uh, an incredible journey. 
That's the voice of Dr. America Bracho. She's the executive director of Latino Health Access based in Santana. Um, and so that is something that really comes through and is really not just told in words, but actually in stories and examples, this work of co-learning and co-teaching and supporting people with their different knowledge and expertise. So as you mentioned, it's it's very difficult to try to address these the health issues people are living with if we don't talk about the systems and structures of oppression that people are facing every day when we don't meant to talk about exploitation or fear or unjust immigration policy. So in the book, you know, we can see how these things just came out and became part of the work because the people that were actually doing much of the work were able to name and identify what were some of the barriers that were beyond just access to a clinic. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about an example. There's so many wonderful stories that really bring to life for people who maybe aren't as familiar with this this community expertise model, this model of promotoras that are um, not just volunteers, but actually employees at an organization that are sharing their expertise. Can you t- share with us one of the many stories from your book? So, so some examples. So our promotores Again, our first program was the diabetes one, and uh, the promotores teach the classes on diabetes. I wrote the curriculum as a person with a master in public health. Uh, The curriculum is based on popular education. That first version has evolved with the input of participants and promotores. and, And, you know, so the version that we have today of that program is a much better one. And uh, it has concepts such as the person is the person and the problem is the problem. So for us, people with diabetes are people with diabetes, not diabetics. We separate the problem so people can talk about the problem because people with diabetes are also people with dreams and families and desires. So everything that we use has to do with, you know, let's think about this, let's come up with solutions, whether those are the solutions to manage your condition, to improve your family or to improve your community. There is another concept in which the service, like diabetes, becomes the entry door for participation. Community workers talk to us about four things that they do mainly. One is outreach. We have to find the people, not to give them our services, but to invite them to transform their community. And services is one of the things that we do. So we go, last year we did 100,000 contacts, outreach contacts. You know, house by house, markets, streets, we need to find our community because as many as we know, there are much, much more people that we don't know. And we talk about, you know, the the 20 women that are now being successful in, in, in leading violence, but we talk about the ones that are being killed in this moment. I mean, there is a sense of urgency every day in our agency because our community are our co-workers. So we have healthy weight programs where, you know, with kids, and we have emotional wellness programs using the narrative ideas in which people have multiple stories, not only the story of the problem, and it's in the multiple stories of their lives that that they have, they find the strength to fight the problem. And, you know, so we have a lot of philosophical guides that we use, and one of them is that children are also part of the solution not just clients. And children are not just the leaders of tomorrow. There is something very concrete they can do now. So our youngest community worker is six. And, uh, and you know, and children not only, they learn how to be healthier, but they take the message to their families and, uh, and to their communities. Children are very generous. And our proposal to the community was the following. What are the things that you like for your kid? And people said, we want them to have a good heart. So we had a conversation about the fact that the heart is a muscle. And there are, you know, fitness programs for all of our muscles, your legs, your arms. The fitness for the heart is the service to others. If you don't serve people, if you are not there helping others, your heart is not going to be fit. So... Of course, our community wanted that, and we started our program many years ago with 70 kids. These kids then, you know, they learn about something, and then they go to the community and they teach. 
But it created also a space where people get to know each other and trust each other, which is the second point that promotores talk about. So they talk about outreach. Then they talk about a place where we get to know each other and to build trust. And this is very important because this is different from inviting the community to take an action. Invite these Latinos from this community to go to city council and yell at the mayor and then do not connect with them anymore. We don't believe in that. We believe that we are building a community. We are in relationships every day, not just in transactions, but in relationships. It's not just a transaction. Come to my program, buy one more number, two more numbers. But how do we get to know and think together about, about our present and our future? So this became a space where adults got to know each other and help each other and celebrate the birthday of the kids and so forth. It became also an entry point for potential promotores. And as a matter of fact, around five of the moms from that program are now community workers with Latino health access. But this group of parents then advocated for a park. And this, this, this is one, one of the places with less open spaces in, in, the, in Orange County. And I can tell you that after a lot of this fight, as we speak, you know, in probably in April, the city will start building there the first park community center inside the school, which will be the second park in the 92701 after the one that we created close to our agency in a zip code that didn't have a single park. And many of these kids now are adults working with us. They became part of coalitions that are now influencing the general plan of the city of Santa Ana. And some of these parents that came as victims of domestic violence into the program are now sitting at those tables as representatives of their communities and, as we speak, are organizing the Latino vote. These are processes that give you immediate success, immediate results, because now Pedrito is in the program and he's learning about safety, but he's building communities, building relationships, building hope. It's a, it's a space where we unlearn apathy and learn participation. We unlearn this idea that there's nothing that we can change, and we learn our power, which is a very interesting discussion to have with you, Julieta, because the bilingual style of your program, but when we talk about power with our community, they put their, their eyes like, wow, power, power. It's like they are connecting with this horrible power of the narco people, you know. But then we talk about power in Spanish. And we say, no, no, hablemos de poder, hablemos de que usted puede. Usted puede, usted puede tener una familia eh, unida, usted puede, sus hijos pueden graduarse de la universidad, usted puede tener casas decentes, usted puede ejercer sus derechos. We are talking about the fact that you, you can, usted sí puede, y para poder hay que tener poder. No solamente hay que querer poder por tener poder. I don't know how you're going to translate that to your listeners. No, I guess van a entender, because the, I think that that translates across the board. So to have power, you need to feel powerful. And you need to feel like you can. You need to feel like you have the ability to change and you have you are empowered. You to have power you have to be empowered and so Right. I, I think that it was, there was a comedian. I always tell the story about the comedian that used to say we are we are a lot of Latinos and we are more and more every time, but if we don't have power and we don't organize our power, the numbers will not count. So it is through this uh, organized voice and then, you know, many other organizations that are working in Santa Ana and Orange County with collective outcomes that we have been able to, to do more and more. Now we are talking about economic development. Now we are talking more about housing. We are more respected, not because they want to respect us, because it's because the community is more and more organized. It's respecting always the role of, of services. So the children initiative, that whole process, is what we call the hope energy action process. That is possible through projects of hope energy and action. And those projects could, could be as, uh, I wouldn't say simple, but as small as creating a ballet folklorico for your neighborhood or a crafts and arts project or a children initiative so children can be community workers or creating a park 
the zip code where we started our work didn't have a single park. It took 11 years for us to create the first park, but it was an incredible hope energy action project. I can tell you that when we opened the park, that is now in Santa Ana, is one of our jewels. It's called El Parque de Corazones Verdes, the Green Heart Park. It has an advisory board. It's run with volunteers. And it has the first urban farm in, in that part of town. When we were inaugurating the park, the, the women were saying, okay, we are ready for the next one. You know, it was that feeling that, that we can, you know. So, so there are a lot of strengths in our community, and the community really know how to think, and they are the experts. But I say I'm convinced that some other individuals cannot see that, again, because they are used to seeing individuals, the strengths attached to college degree or money or status, and that's why they don't include our community. Uh, we include people that come, you know, as victims of domestic violence, and when they they start working on their on their situation, and they become volunteers with Latino Health Access, and then we hire them, and they continue the healing process. But the healing is just one story. The other story is that they are very powerful and very resilient. That's why they are there, and we want that resiliency to go into into the community to to encourage other people. So the testimonial from, from one of our promotores, from Oscar, in the in page 57 of our book, Oscar was for many, many years during his youth uh, part of gangs in Santa Ana, and he was involved with, with many things that uh, he's not proud of. Uh, but then he, he stopped, and he stopped using alcohol, and he stopped using drugs, and he has been a community worker with Latino Hot Access for many years. I'm always admire on how he's able to love men that are in this moment, in this moment, are doing things that I can't stand. So, so I say, well, I, I can't work with this man. Then I call Oscar and I say, Oscar, you need to help that man because I don't have what it takes to help him. So in this book have really detailed the thoughtful guidelines and just some principles to really guide your work as you not just honor the community participation of promotoras, but actually um, work hand in hand and side by side as uh, as they kind of in many ways lead the way in determining some of the programmatic decisions that you all take. So why don't you talk to us about some of the guiding principles that you all use as you move forward and share with our listeners a little bit about some of the thinking you all have done to develop a more thoughtful vision of what it means to do community work. Right. So in the book, after many, many years, but eight years working really in the book, not only with the promotores in Latino Health Access, but promotores in the nation, in Mexico, in Chile, in Australia, in many, many places, we have come up with the 18 competencies that people working in the community need to work on and develop to do good community work. And doesn't mean that you have to have it. It means that your training, your, your learning needs to be focused on those competencies. Like, you know, know how to build and maintain relationships. Know how to build capacity among families and communities. Know how to connect with services and assure utilization. Know how to advocate. So there are there are many competencies, and 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 it shows, you know, in in that list, if a person has that competency, how will it look? So it's very very useful. Then the other one are the twenty principles. So there are eighteen competencies. There are twenty principles of practice. We believe that that organizations and groups need to define their vision. That's the first one. We believe that health is not absence of disease. That organizing the Latino vote is working for health. That health is about wellness, mental, physical, and social health. So you have to define what is for you. So you can have uh, principles that guide you. We have the principle of participation. Participation makes a difference. If you don't participate, you will be the, the, a silent witness of, of the participation of others and your own inaction. I mean, reciprocity. Everybody gives, everybody receives. I mean, accountability. There are, there are many, many principles, 20 principles. 
The book also explains how to recruit promotores, what are the things you, you look for. And for us, the heart is the thing that we need to recruit, is the person that is committed to social justice, is the person that cares about the community, is the person that believes that the suffering of others is our own suffering, and that we're in all of this together. And then we train and we, we learn, because not only people with university degrees need to learn, communities need to learn. The prejudice and the dominant discourse is in, in each of us. There are people that, that also live in low-income communities, even people from our own communities, Latinos, that have prejudice against other Latinos or against people of color. So we all need to unlearn these things and learn a better, a better way. We also talk in the book about how to co-train and co-learn and unlearn and how to also recruit supervisors. This is not just how to recruit community workers. This is about how to recruit the rest of the team and how to create relationships that allow uh, these, these agendas to, to flourish. There is a piece on institutions that want to work with community workers. You know, institutions that want to work with community workers really need to think in the why. Do I want to bring communities so they can do the marketing of my company? Or do I really want to bring community experts that can inform my strategy so we can be, work more with an equity lens? And we have ideas on evaluation. If you're working with new, new ways and new programs and new methods, we need to talk about ways of evaluating programs that are also new. That's the voice of Dr. America Bracho. She's the executive director of Latino Health Access. We're talking about the important work um, over 20 years, 23 years of Latino Health Access, which has been documented and has been developed into a tool that organizations can use to learn from their model of true community involvement and integration. This book that I'm referring to, which is a very useful guide, is called Recruiting the Heart, Training the Brain, the Work of Latino Health Access. So, Dr. Bracho, something that I'm sure a lot of people are wondering is since the impact of this work is so extensive because it has so many different layers, as you mentioned, everything from advocating for a park to building power and transforming family dynamics. Most health programs have a very basic, basic, basic way of measuring impact, which is just how many people served, you know, did they continue maybe pre-test, post-test? Okay, are they now using their inhalers more or they changed their diets? But it's very basic, and it's not really getting to these deeper, very transformative changes that are happening in Santana through the work of Latino Health Access. Share with us a little bit about the thinking that you all have done to try to capture some of this important work. We, we do evaluation on clinical outcomes and everything, but we also are thinking and, and working on how to measure participation, for example. On page 47, you will see some of that thinking on the levels of the participation continuum. We talk about the fact that people come to, to Latino Hold Access, let's say for services or, or anything else. The first day we meet them, we see them as leaders, and we, we see them as being in level one participation when they just come to the agency or contact us. So there could be an exercise class, a cooking class, but then uh, they become volunteers, and uh, somehow they start helping. Uh, so it's no longer about me. It's, it's also about giving to others. And then there is level three in which they are already participating, participating in a project and using their talents. And on level four, people have a more mature participation that is shown in advocacy, participating in committees, and, uh, and many other ways. We see that the participation matures, and it goes either deeper into an issue, a person can just, maybe they want to continue working on diabetes and advocating with clinics and doctors on behalf of others or teaching them how to advocate, or it can move into uh, a larger uh, social part, like now I want to become representative in city council. So what we have learned is that there are ways in which we can motivate that participation by including people, by having this intentional conversation, by giving spaces where people can gain skills and try them out. So we are coming up with a bunch of indicators of participation. So it's not just, oh, yeah, people participate. No. Why are you saying this? I mean, from 
how many ideas from that group of women have you captured? And, you know, we want people to be accountable for fostering participation. So that's, that's a way we have on leadership, we have actions. What, how many actions are, are being taken? How many policies are being influenced? Right now, we want to monitor how many of our policy gains are being implemented, which is an issue because we, we are somehow influencing policies, but, but there is very little implementation because that requires a lot of presence on those tables, you know, so, so you know, ongoing challenges. But, uh, but we, are, we have to challenge inside our own organization to come up with ways of validating this. I mean, the, the systems that have dominated evaluation are not going to validate us. We need to find the validation in our community and in our own practice, and, and that's how it is. That's the voice of Dr. America Bracho. We're talking about recruiting the heart, training the brain, the work of Latino health access. So there are a lot of people listening that are probably thinking that this kind of work is just not the work that is really being supported either by the the state or city funding that they receive or by the other kinds of funding that they can apply for, that this is just something that seems to a transformation of their current way of of doing work. And they may, may be excited, but they may think about the climate and the, the difficulties that they may face. I want folks to just hear a little bit because Santana, for people who don't know, isn't, you know, isn't the most, isn't the place where immigrants have been treated with the most respect in the world. It's a place where, unfortunately, there's been a lot of hateful discourse, and it doesn't, unfortunately, have the legacy of organizing up until recently that we may have seen in other places. So why don't you tell our listeners that are maybe listening to us in the Central Valley, we have a lot of listeners in the Central Valley or maybe perhaps closer to Sacramento, and that they're in places where they think, you know, this sounds wonderful, this sounds important, but we couldn't do that here. There's just no way we could either receive the funding to do it, there's no way that we could make the shifts because there are many people that from an ideological place don't see community work happening in this way. So what would you say to those listeners? Well, first, I say that we need to unlearn pessimism. That is a discourse that is very detrimental. That the reason why sometimes we think that change is not possible is because we are not validating our daily success. That every time you talk to someone in the community that has the desire to change the way we live, that's a success that uh, every gathering with two, three people to discuss the future of our kids is a success, that, um, that we need to just do the work, and that funding has been guiding many of our work. And funding is important, but it's not, it's not the only thing that we need. Cesar Chavez didn't change what he changed because he had grants. And women didn't gain the right to vote because they had grants. And South Africa was not able to get into government, the African, the, the black people, because they had grants. So grants are important, but, uh, but it's, that is not what is going to transform our communities. I can tell you, I know we don't have a lot of time, but uh, we do, we write grants, but we also do a lot of social enterprise and consulting, and we have trainings and we sell tamales, and we clean cars, and we do kermesses, and we recycle bottles, and we do a bunch of other things to sustain our programs because we have salaries. And we believe in the dignity of creating the salaries to do this work and, and that allow us to be focused. You know, it is not an easy task. It's not easy. I don't want to, to simplify it. But it, it is guided by principles. And, uh, and what matters here is that we know that our community can do this, that we have the strength to do it, that is the right thing, that nobody is going to do it for us, and that we have the obligation of being creative to sustain this. But money is not the only thing that is going to sustain this. It's the principles and the conviction and the organizing that is going to sustain our program. That's the voice of Dr. America Bracho. We're talking about the work of Latino Health Access. So people can really find more inspiration and more learning and also 
a lot of great examples and things to get truly excited about the possibilities and the successes that have come out of this important work. So how can listeners best connect to the work of Latino Health Access? We've been talking about the book, Recruiting the Heart, Training the Brain, the work of Latino Health Access, and that is a truly valuable tool that organizations can greatly benefit from, and it's written in a very easy-to-use format, and it's super accessible. But what are other ways that people can stay connected and learn from the work of Latino Health Access? Well, our website, www.latinohealthaccess.org, and uh, they can follow us in the LHA org in Twitter. I mean, we have Facebook. We we are located in Santa Ana, and we are a zero mystery agency, so we also have visitors all the time of people that want to talk with the promotores and talk to us and our evaluators, our coordinators, to talk about our challenges and our successes. So more than happy to to have you over or to contact us. So taking a step back, this is work that is not work. It's really more of uh, a calling or a dedication. It's a, a life path because it informs so many things that that you do and that the people you work with at Latino Health Access do. It's hard to draw the lines between where their work starts and their lives begin. So why don't you talk to us about why that is so key and also how Latino Health Access really honors that? Well, one, because our community workers are our neighbors. And they bring in Latino Health Access a sense of urgency. I remember the words of Araceli every day. Araceli is one of our promotoras that say, your grant, my life, your outcomes, my kids. And uh, and I do, I have that in my heart. I mean, that, that uh, this is the personal is the professional and the personal is the political. And if your life and your traumas and your ex-successes, all of that inform your ability to also help. I would love if you can share with us, you know, uh, do us the honor of reading what Kathy has to say about how her experience in life, as painful as it was, has informed how ready she is now to work with our community. In page 176, we say, we invite you to think. Who has not heard expressions such as, on the job, you should not mix the personal with the professional, or don't take it personally? What do these phrases mean? Could there be a way to separate ourselves from where we work, as if we were just a sack of job skills unconnected to our lives, histories, and realities, as if we should only reconnect with ourselves after we leave the office? Moises was one of our promotors that started with us when he was 15. And uh, amazing kid, now he's 30-something. He went to school and he did music, and his story is in the book. But after coming thinking that his community had, had anything to offer, nothing to offer, he grew convinced that our community has a lot of strength. And at the very end of the book, is the song that he wrote for a play in South Coast Repertoire that had to do with Santa Ana. And uh, he did the music for the play, and, and that's the way we, we, we decided to close the book. It's called The People of My City. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros. I've had the pleasure to speak with Dr. America Bracho. She's the executive director of the Latino Health Access, and she, along with her wonderful team at Latino Health Access, developed this book, Recruiting the Heart, Training the Brain, the work of Latino Health Access. It's been a true pleasure to speak with you and hear about the commitment and the dedication and also the thought and care and analysis that you all put in on a daily basis to not only create a healthier community, but create a community where everyone is respected and has the ability to thrive and work for a more just world. Muchísimas gracias. Gracias a ti.
You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, and I am very lucky to have on the line with us Edgar Torres. Edgar Torres is the chair of the Latin American and Latino Studies Department at San Francisco City College. Thank you so much, Edgar, for joining us on the phone. Well, thank you so much for having me. And just for a bit of clarity, Latin American and Latino Studies is really two departments that are put together into one Historically, we were Latin American studies, which is an area studies, which is basically a discipline that discusses subject matters, and I'm being very broad now, that concern Latin Americans outside of the United States. About 10 years ago, we combined it with Latino studies, which is an ethnic studies. So San Francisco State is basically the first university that gives a degree in ethnic studies, which is basically studying the populations residing within the United States. So we took both of those, put them together. So we have an exciting department. Actually, it's modeled after UC Santa Cruz, which is the first department that teaches Latin American and Latino studies. So we're the first community college to do that as well. It's very different than the average. It offers the perspective from people residing in the in the United States, which for most people it's like La Raza studies or Chicano studies, but because there's so many ethnicities of Latinos that include Central Americans and South Americans, uh, we like to embrace everyone. So we're an ethnicity. We're not a race. And so we have Asian Latinos. We have African American Latinos. We cover everybody. And that's why these classes are so fun. And it really does fit with our program, actually. Cronicas de la Raza focuses on America Latina, all of news coming out of the Americas, as well as all the news coming out of the United States, of all the different Latino groups that are making changes and working for a more just world here. So thank you so much, Edgar, for that background. So that kind of gives people a sense of how broad the areas of study are at City College. City College is such a unique institution that offers classes that you really can't take anywhere else. And right now we're in January. This is a really important time of the year for people who are considering exploring their interests and either taking one class or becoming a full-time student, this is the time to really get familiar with courses at San Francisco City College. So, Edgar, I know that people listening may think, oh, well, I've been out of school for a long time. School was never my favorite thing, but I am really passionate about America Latina, or I am really passionate about making changes or understanding social movements or understanding my own history, because as we all know, we're, you know, we're nowhere without no understanding our roots. So um, what would you say to students that are thinking about this January, taking a look at what offerings are available at City College? You know, a lot of students really have a plan, and they're really thinking about tomorrow, and they're thinking about how to get there. But also, you know, there's a tremendous amount of students, and especially the working population, who's just coming over to the community college for the first time or may have visited a long time ago. And there might be something that's of interest to them. It might be a language class. You know, it might be, you know, a class that deals with their roots, or there might be a class that's dealing with something like maybe an area that they want to visit in the future. And, you know, we offer so many classes and offer classes that are suited for so many different diverse interests, whether it be transfer, whether it be enrichment. There's so many classes that we offer that my advice is is to take a look at our catalog. Our catalog offers so many different classes in so many different areas, so many interrelated areas. You know, students can maybe find something that they want to take. And, and it just could be one class. It doesn't have to be, you know, six units, nine units. It doesn't have to be. In fact, you know, the majority of our students are part-time students because most of, most of us have to work. I had a student that was a, uh, a student that was basically homeless and was just trying to find out a way to get off of the streets. And uh, he was a music student, and he ended up taking a music class. He intersected with us. In Latin American studies, he ended up applying for a scholarship from the Latin American Educational Association. He got that. And then about a year and a half ago, he calls me up and he says, hey, I'm graduating from state and they're playing my symphony at graduation. I mean, it, it made my day, my week. It just made me so happy. So we're speaking to Edgar Torres. He's the chair of the Latin American and Latino Studies Department 
at, which is a combination of two different areas of studies, two different departments at San Francisco City College. And we're talking about the wide range of offerings of courses. Since this is January, this is a time where people need to start looking at the course catalog, making their decisions, and they have the opportunity to, to take as much or as little as they can or want to take. So often when we talk about City College, the question of accreditation comes up, since that is the news that we're hearing, this this fear that City College is going to be shut down or that classes taken at City College will not give people the credit they need if they're thinking about transferring to a four-year institution. So Edgar, please give us some information. So what is actually happening now, and what would you say to students that are having these concerns? Well, you know, those still being brought up. I'd like to let everybody know that, number one, we've never lost accreditation. We've never been criticized for our quality of academics. Our, our classes are among the best offered. It's not uncommon that in many of the disciplines that we teach, that when our students transfer, they do much better than the native students in the universities that they transfer to. So it is unfortunate that the ACCJC, who is under criticism themselves, has decided to attack City College. We're being attacked mostly because of our, our, our concern for our community and the values that we have. I'm going to say to you, and of course you're talking to somebody who's extremely prejudiced, that this January, the end of January, beginning of February, we'll have our accreditation returned back to us. We may get dinged again for some fiscal concerns, but we'll be through this. Our classes are accredited. Our classes fully transfer. Anybody taking a class over here, I'm telling you right now not to fear anything that's coming in the future. We should be through this by February. So there's also some really exciting news about City College, about what's on the horizon in terms of increasing access to the college. Can you tell us about the last electoral win at the ballot box for City College? Well, we're excited about Proposition W. 62% of the city and county of San Francisco voted in favor of it, which means that if you are a resident of of, uh, San Francisco or if you're working in San Francisco, you will be given free tuition. And if if that's not a concern, you could get aid in terms of book support, which incidentally is ridiculous, the price of books and and things like that. So we're excited about that. We do know that we have a battle with some administrators of the city and county of San Francisco, in particular a mayor. But what people aren't aware of, uh, they're pitting some of the funds that are going to go to the homeless against City College. But people don't recognize that a lot of our City College population is at risk as well, and that we also have homeless students. We also have, as I mentioned earlier, at-risk populations like Guardian Scholars, like Vets, like Second Chance, And so we need to make sure that what we voted for, that those funds come and afford us uh, free tuition at City College, which we'd love to see. The city voted for it. Let's get it through. So we have probably a lot of people listening that have benefited a lot from City College and really truly love the college and want to make sure that it stays strong. What can people do to support City College and really do everything they can to make sure it continues to serve all the people it serves? Well, right now, my major concern is that we keep a broad amount of classes offered throughout the day and evening so that access is provided for any population that's looking for classes. So what we need is our students enrolling. We need people enrolling immediately as soon as they can, getting into classes and keeping those numbers robust so that the administrators don't close a class that they consider under-enrolled and is not, let's say, bringing enough revenues. When we do that, what we end up having is the students that uh, are enrolled in classes that, let's say, have nine or fewer students, they normally do not go to another class. And we're starting to see that evidence now. So what we need to do is get people enrolling and and making sure that those classes are not canceled. We are speaking with Edgar Torres from San Francisco City College. So tell us, Edgar, right now is January. By when do people need to sign up? And what information do you have for folks that are thinking that going to school is really not within their reach in terms of costs? First of all, we need people enrolling as soon as possible. I know that the first cuts to classes will be made on the 18th. 
We need to get people in and enroll as soon as possible. First uh, cut for classes will be the 11th. That will be January the 11th, but classes begin the 17th. So that's the first day. Classes are $46 a unit, so taking a three-unit class would be three times 46. But, you know, there's the governor's fee waiver. So if you register and apply for the fee waiver, and most of our students qualify for that, that means that their tuition is uh, covered by the state, and they only have to pay, I forget, the health service and a certain, so essentially for probably under $50, they could enroll for free. We've had the pleasure to speak with Edgar Torres. He is with San Francisco City College. So, Edgar, again, please let listeners know how they can find out more about the many offerings at City College. Yes, yes. Well, first of all, if you go to our website, which is www.ccsf.edu, you can find the spring catalog, and you can also find a link there to register if you've never registered before. You'll see it's just an incredible array of, of different disciplines, departments, you know, from credit to non-credit, from people who might be just interested in just taking a ESL non-credit course that does not cost anything. The greatest number of ESL courses are offered at Mission Center. You could walk in, you could look at the schedule online, and there's just a tremendous number of courses that are offered at not only Ocean, but nine different centers throughout San Francisco, an incredible array of classes for many, many different interests and and level of interest as well. I always like to highlight our department because our department intersects with so many different departments. Latin American Latino Studies, because we are an ethnicity, we intersect with gender classes, so we offer a Latin American class that deals with gender. It's called Latinos in the the United States. It's taught at Mission Campus. We even offer statistics classes. So if you're interested in taking a Math 80 class, we offer the equivalent introduction to statistics in Latin American Latino Studies. I teach art history classes. So if you're interested in the ancient art and architecture of Latin America, I teach a day class taught Tuesdays and Thursdays at 11 o'clock, and I teach an evening class at Mission Center taught Tuesday evenings. If you're interested in a U.S. history class, we teach Latinos in the United States, the Latino diaspora course, and that class is, I think there are nine sections of it. And uh, that's a wonderful class. It transfers to state as a U.S. history class. I teach two sections of the colonial history of Latin America. Once again, I'd love people to take that class as well. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas, and this is the calendar of Bay Area events and happenings for the week of Tuesday, January 10th through the 23rd. For Friday, January 13th, legendary Bay Area percussionist Pete Escovedo will be playing an intimate show at the chapel in San Francisco. Mr. Escovedo will be celebrating 62 years in the entertainment business and his 82nd birthday. The chapel is located at 777 Valencia Street in San Francisco. Starts at 9 p.m. For more information, go to thechapelsf.com. Join La Peña Cultural Center on January 14th for a night celebrating Fidel Castro's life, the anniversary of the Cuban Revolution, and how to move forward to end the blockade. This is at La Peña Cultural Center, located at 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley starts at 6.30 p.m. LaPeña.org For Sunday, January 15th, join local Bay Area bands Scandelaria, Bang Dada, Mano Cherga, and poet Rupert Estanislao, presenting a night of Latin, Balkan, and Afro rhythms. Benefits will go to raising funds for the Mission District-based community action group Poder who work to preserve the rights of immigrant, elderly, environmental causes, and other underrepresented communities in San Francisco. The benefit will be held at Slims in San Francisco. 333 11th Street starts at 8 p.m. 
slimspresents.com for more information. For Monday, January 16th, the third annual March to Reclaim Martin Luther King Jr.'s Legacy. This year, the march will focus on immigrant rights, protection of our Muslim brothers and sisters, women's reproductive rights, loving our LGBTQ sisters, brothers, and siblings, and the defense of black life. It will start at Oscar Grant Plaza in Oakland from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on January 16th. For Friday, January 20th, Mexican cumbia legend Celso Piña and the Bay Area's own Guanandinga will be playing a mix of cumbia and Afro-Caribbean beats. This is at the New Parish in Oakland, 1743 San Pablo Avenue. It starts at 9 p.m. And for more information, go to thenewparish.com. The Women's March will be held around the Bay Area on January 21st. The rhetoric of the past election cycle has insulted, demonized, and threatened immigrants of all statuses, Muslims, and those of diverse religious faiths. People who identify as LGBTQIA, Native people, Black and brown people, people with disabilities, and survivors of sexual assault. The Women's March on Washington will send a bold message to our new government on their first day in office and to the world that women's rights are human rights. The Women's March in Oakland will start in Madison Park at 10 a.m., in San Francisco at Civic Center at 4 p.m., and in San Jose at City Hall at 10 a.m. For more information on all the Women's Marches events in the Bay Area, go to womensmarchbayarea.org. The Mexican Museum presents a new exhibition, Fascination with Fauna, the Portrayal of Animals in Pre-Hispanic Art, the first art exhibition of its kind in the United States, where the specific focus is on how animals were revered, even worshipped, by the early peoples of Mexico, Centro America, and Peru. With more than 2,000 items in our pre-Hispanic art collection, guests can expect to see some of the finest examples of pre-Hispanic art in the world. The Mexican Museum is located at Fort Mason Center, Building D, between Marina Boulevard and Buchanan Street in San Francisco. The exhibition runs till February 26th. For more information, go to mexicanmuseum.org. And this has been a list of Bay Area events, Cultura y Arte, for the Bay Area. If you would like to add your event to the calendar, please email us at larrazachronicles at kpfa.org. Or for more information on our show, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash larrazachronicles. Feliz noches! You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. To stay updated on our show and to get the latest news, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash La Raza Chronicles. You can also listen to this program again or share it with your friends by going to soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles. And if there's an event you think we should be covering or to be part of our collective, send us an email at Chronicles at kpfa.org. Happy New Year, Feliz Año Nuevo a todos, y buenas noches.